This podcast was first broadcast on Fresh FM, the top of the South Community Access Radio Station. For more information on Fresh FM, as well as links to other great local podcasts, go on our website freshfm.net or download the accessmedia.nz app. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No my hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wished you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland toko inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of this show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is sponsored by CNF Legal in Fakatu Nelson. Did you know that in New Zealand roughly 1,500 people die every year without a will? Don't be one of those people. And be wary of DIY. Homemade wills can be trickier and take longer to get through probate. So don't cut corners. It will cost you and your loved ones in more ways than you can imagine. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life. So give Marie or Robin a call on 03 545 8080. Thank you for joining me for Episode 3 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Once again, I want to say a big thank you to all the listeners who have been in contact with me with feedback about the first two episodes. It's great to hear from you all and please keep the feedback and requests coming. It's also been great hearing from some of you about where you have been listening to the show, like Laura who sent me a photo on Instagram while she was listening to episode two. When I asked her where the photo was taken, she told me it was from the bottom of the Steps of Doom on the beach with no name below Kennedy Park looking out towards Rangatoto. Both the photo and the name led me to respond that it seemed like a suitably moody place to listen to a show about death. The fact that the steps of doom disappear at high tide feels like an apt metaphor for the challenges some people face talking about death, dying and grief. It's sometimes easier, easy to ignore difficult topics when they're out of view, but this doesn't make them go away. They're there still, lurking just under the surface. And even when the tide is coming in, wander into the water at your peril, given all the steps of doom's hard, spiky edges and slippery bits. And then the natural cycle of life does its thing and it's impossible not to see the truth unveiled. This leads me nicely to the theme for this show, which is tricky conversations. Coming up, I'll be talking with palliative care specialist, therapist and author Dr Catherine Mannix, who is based in the UK and has worked with many thousands of dying people and has found their ability to deal with illness and death both fascinating and inspirational. She believes that a better public awareness about what happens as we die reduces the fear and enables people to discuss their hopes and plans with the people who matter to them. But before we talk, it's time for the first bookend. You're listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life and it's time for Death in Print. In this segment, in each show, I talk about a new book or article that has something interesting to say about death and dying. 
Today I'd like to introduce Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations, which was published in September 2021 by HarperCollins in New Zealand, Australia and the UK. Dr. Catherine Mannix's first book, With the End in Mind, was published in 2018 and became a Sunday Times bestseller. Her follow-up book is, as the title suggests, about conversations that matter and how to have them better, more honestly, more confidently and without regrets. By bringing together stories drawn from a lifetime's experience working in medicine and informed by the latest psychology, Mannix offers lessons for how we can better speak our mind and help when others need to. Having been someone who did the exact opposite and found myself unable to have honest conversations with my late husband Steve about the fact he was dying, I really could have used this book about 10 years ago. My inability to talk about death left me with a lot of regrets. So while this book doesn't just deal with conversations about death, Mannix also shares stories about a child coming out to their parent, a friend noticing the first signs of someone's dementia, and a careers advisor and a teenager with radically different perspectives. She more than adequately deals with what is one of our biggest taboos. She looks at the impact of the pandemic, how social isolation has impacted on our mental health, how it restricts family and friends from being with their loved ones when they're dying of COVID-19 and collectively mourning their death, as well as the impact it's had on hospitals and medical staff. While she doesn't tackle what is probably one of the most difficult conversations many of us may face these days when we're talking to whānau or friends who might have different beliefs about the severity of COVID and vaccination, the fundamental skills you need to start this trickiest of tricky conversations are all illuminated in LISTEN. Now that I'm an advocate of death literacy, LISTEN is right up my alley. It's an accessible read and gives lots of practical examples through other stories of new ways to connect and communicate. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. In today's show, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Catherine Mannix, who is a retired palliative care specialist and cognitive behaviour therapist. Catherine Mannix has spent her medical career working with people who have incurable advanced illnesses. Starting in cancer care and changing career to become a pioneer of what was then the new discipline of palliative medicine, she has worked in teams in hospices, hospitals and in patients' own homes to deliver end-of-life care. In 1993, she started the UK's and possibly the world's first CBT clinic exclusively for palliative care patients. More recently, she set out on a mission to reclaim public understanding of dying. Her weapon of choice is stories. So your first book with the end in mind, How to Live and Die Well, which was an international bestseller, was informed by your four decades of clinical palliative care and cognitive behavioural therapy practice. Your new book, Listen, How to Find Words for Tender Conversations, takes a little bit broader focus, in my understanding, to be about any conversation that we're putting off. When and how did the idea for this book germinate? Great question. I didn't see myself as a person who would write any book, let alone more than one book. But there was a massive correspondence from With the End in Mind. And a lot of it will was stuff that I, you will be familiar with, and I'm sure that you 
talked about before here, which was people recognising for the first time the sequence of events that they'd actually witnessed as somebody was dying and realising that the strange noises that unconscious people make are not signs of suffering and kind of reinterpreting their deathbed companion experience and being released from their own suffering because of that. So that was the correspondence that made me very satisfied that with the end in mind was doing the job I'd sent it out into the world to do. But there was another load of correspondence that I hadn't really anticipated. And that was people saying, okay, you convinced me we need to talk about this stuff. But how do you start? Won't we upset people? I'm trying to talk to my parents about this and they keep closing me down. Or I need to talk to my parents about this, but I just don't want to say something that sounds terrible, like I'm expecting you to die, Dad. <laughs> or older people or people with serious and life-threatening illnesses saying, you know, I want to prepare my family and my loved ones for this. And every time I try and raise it, they close me down. They say, you're still living yet. Yeah, don't lose hope. That will, that's bad for you. Um, so all these people who are, who are trying at, at these conversations, almost like waves trying to get up ashore and they get so far and then the wave breaks and they, and they fall back again and they haven't managed to get to the kind of threshold of starting that conversation. And my publishers were very keen for a second book. Turns out when you write a book that's a bestseller, your publishers would like a second book. And that makes sense to me, I suppose. It's a whole new world to me in publishing. And I didn't really want to write a book just to write a book. That felt to me like that would be a vanity project. And that's why there's been a gap of nearly four years between these two books, because it took a while for me to realise, actually, here's this thing that keeps coming up. And I do have some experience of this. I do know ways people can get into these conversations. So at that point, I went back to the publishers and said, listen, I, I think, sorry, that pun wasn't intended. Listen, But I, I, I think there's a book here which is about navigating those conversations. And they said, yes, but we don't want a second death book. Okay, you do you do know what I did for a living, don't you? You do know that <laughs> that is that is what I'm about, really. Um, so they said, could you could you broaden it? Could you um think about how 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 would a family tell the kids they were getting divorced? And I thought, no, no, no. I there are those very specific conversations are not what I'm about. But their, that suggestion of theirs helped me to then work out what I have got to offer. And that is not a recipe for individual conversations, scripts, if you, if you like, but an approach to any conversation that feels emotionally loaded, um, where rather than having a script to follow, there are principles that help us to navigate those conversations. And now it doesn't matter whether we're discussing dying or fertility or exam results or redundancy or teenage behavior. The way we approach those conversations so that we hold each other within that conversation 
is pretty similar from one conversation to the next. And that, I thought, that's a book that I think I can write. And that's mm. how this was born. Mm. And of course, there's a big clue in the title of the book to one of the, what one of the key principles is in being listening. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? When people have something really tricky that they want to discuss, they often feel that what they need to do is you know, just get that person or those people in a room, sit them down and give them a really good talking to, and then we'll be sorted and I'll be out of there and it'll be done. And of course, that's the real recipe for it going absolutely wrong within two sentences. And the idea that actually what really makes a difference is giving somebody a really good listening to is a little bit counterintuitive, isn't it? You kind of feel like they need to know what I think. But actually, we're making a huge assumption that they need to know, that they don't already realise that they haven't observed things about me that already have been giving them clues about what I think. And actually, I'm making an assumption about what they think, and I don't know. So really, it's about humility, isn't it, as we go into those conversations, that we we start off by saying that we're going to be equals in this. I do have some stuff to say, but I need to plant it in a way that enables you to hear it. So I need to be listening to you as well. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to read in the book how your use of the word tender was an attempt to reframe in many ways what has, I guess, a term that has become quite popular in recent years, the, the term courageous conversations. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about why you felt tender was a, a better way for the process and the skill of, of having these sorts of important life-changing conversations? Sure. I, to start off with, it was partly uh, a response to medical training, where there are lots of training courses that people can go on for difficult conversations, courageous conversations. Um, and it, it just seemed to me that even labelling the conversation as requiring courage, um, being difficult, it's starts you preparing yourself for the conversation in a way that is defensive, in a way that you're kind of putting your armour on, if you like, to, to get in there and get this thing done. And actually, if what we really want is a meeting of minds, then it's the very opposite of that. It is taking your armour off and going in and saying, I'm vulnerable, you're vulnerable, this thing needs to be discussed. Let's do this thing in a way that looks after us all at the same time. And so it seemed to me a little bit like, and I wrote a little bit about this in the book, when when I was training, when, when doctors are being trained to examine people, when you examine somebody's tummy, if it's sore, if it's tender, you've got to be very, very careful you can't not do the examination because you're trying to work out what's going on in there. And it's really important that you do. But at the same time, your awareness of the person's tenderness changes the way you do the examination. And I learned to examine children from a pediatrician who asked the children to put their hand on the back of his hand 
as he was examining their tummy. So they always knew where his hand was and could feel as his fingers started to press in order to examine. They could feel with their fingers and not only with their tummy that was tender. And I actually started to do that not just with children, but with any adult who seemed anxious about being examined. And it was transformational. And I realised that what was happening was their tummy was tender but I was being tender. I was being aware of standing at the edge of their pain and their distress. And I think that's a really great metaphor for these conversations where we're standing at the edge of something that could be really painful for one of us or both of us. And our intention is not to cause hurt. Our intention is to explore the wound, if you like, to explore the pain and find ways forward that perhaps recognise the pain, move us through the pain, Mm. even help us find ways of healing the pain. In your experience, do those who are dying struggle with beginning these tender conversations as much as their family and friends, or is it more the family and friends? I mean, you mentioned earlier about people who on both sides of, of the equation finding it difficult, but who has the most difficulty with starting them? Great question. I think it varies and it varies according to the attitude of dying person and the the beliefs and attitudes of the people who are their beloveds around them. Uh, We we don't have the wonderful expression that uh, you use in New Zealand from the Maori, whānau. But I think that's what we're talking about here, that this may be the family to whom you are related by genes or it may be the family of your choice that you've assembled around you from love and affection and that may include people who are relatives and people who are not but there's an attitude within an individual whānau if you like of either type where some are more open than others about other stuff and so they're likely to be open about this stuff and others are more closed down and difficult things where we just, you know, we sweep it under the carpet and we have to be a bit careful yeah. here. And very often the sick person, I think, takes their cue for whether or not to speak from the preferences of the people around them. And that leads to the slightly awkward situation where as a practitioner, as a doctor, who maybe hasn't known the person very long, maybe it's the first time I've met them, they might have told me all kinds of things that they wish they could have told their family but haven't been able to yet. Um, And that we now can think of some ways together of how we might help to facilitate that conversation. But there are other people, and there's, there's a story and with the end in mind about somebody like this who choose to cope absolutely by denial And that's their absolute right. And I know you know this firsthand. Mm. And that actually, if you can cope by denial and the denial holds rock solid throughout, then if you truly believe that there isn't a problem, you also don't experience the distress that comes from that problem. So the person who is using denial is emotionally safe, isn't on the horns of all of those difficult dilemmas, unless their denial starts to break. And the difficulty is that if they can't hold it to the very end of their life, 
then if it only starts to break down quite close to dying, there may not be time for them to do that kind of accommodating and moving to a different way of coping in which things can be acknowledged and spoken of, and that can be really difficult for people. So families worry about denial because in some way they think that the person is pretending that nothing is wrong, when in fact denial isn't pretending. Denial is some inner psychological mechanism of not believing. So the person is safe, but the family is really anxious that maybe they're not safe, maybe their denial is making them not choose a treatment pathway that the family would prefer them to treat or to choose and all of those sorts of things. So families can be very anxious about denial. And some of my tender conversations with families of sick people have been about how we help the person to choose their own way of coping, even if that is denial. And what do we do to support each other as a family whilst that's going on? For that person. So I think it really varies and it's it's probably usually a pattern that is already a pattern in a family of the way we communicate about things that are painful or difficult or sorrowful. How do you define holding space for another? Or what are your thoughts about that term? Because it's becoming increasingly well, certainly here in, in New Zealand, Aotearoa, it's mm-hmm. become a, a lot more commonly used. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's crept up on us. And I know it's, a, it's an expression I've used quite a lot in the second book. I think when we are in a situation with somebody that there, there is something that is important, whether it's spoken or unspoken at this moment in time, that we're showing each other a respect for that idea or that notion. And so it may be that we're very physically holding space for it. People who've never kept a death vigil usually seem to imagine that it's sorrowful, sombre, solemn, miserable. And there is sorrow there. We mustn't pretend there isn't sorrow there. But there's so much else as well around a deathbed isn't there and families reminiscing about times when you and do you remember that time when we and sometimes it's families who haven't been gathered in the same physical space for a long time and we even saw it here in the UK where um, we had uh, people dying of Covid in our hospitals where families could only be Mm. present virtually and we'd have Zoom calls at a bedside and still families who haven't seen each other for a long time still doing that reminiscing and that chatting that we would normally see in real life around a deathbed. So again, that's a, that's a literal holding of space. But sometimes what you're doing is you're sitting on a bus or on a train and a conversation begins and you realise that this is the thing that is bubbling up from deep inside this person and it's been looking for a space to happen. And sometimes it's something that they've never told anybody else before and they can tell you because you're a stranger and they're never going to see you again. And you've already somehow signalled that you're a listener. And everybody who's listening to this, who is a listener, has had this experience. Um, and it, that you know, people kind of find us on public transport. It's almost like we've got, I, yeah, yes, I listen, stamped on our foreheads. 
And now the space is busy. There is almost no space. But what we're doing is creating a bubble in which for this moment in time, this thing that's very important can be aired, it can be said aloud. There can be long moments of silent thinking, contemplation, acknowledgement during it. And so holding space is as much about time as it is about space, but it's a deliberate attention to what is being said and what remains unsaid, but very often is emotionally palpable in that transaction. A few years ago, I wrote a personal essay called Scared to Death, which was about my thoughts on how anxiety is often a manifestation of fear of death. And I referred to weird cultures. I don't know if you've heard of the term. It's weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic, and how they're essentially death phobic cultures. I was wondering if that it is those cultures where perhaps we've lost connection with Indigenous wisdom that's been handed down through generations and that has led, I mean, there's many complex factors why people are afraid of, of death. But do you think it's more more noticeable in some cultures than others in your experience? So my, I think this is a really, really important question. And I'm answering it partly from reading rather than direct experience, but also from some really interesting experiences that I had, both whilst I was out visiting in New Zealand and was given some really, really helpful insights into Maori cultures by uh, some researchers up in Auckland at the Te Arai Research Unit. And then uh, from South America, where our son lived for a while and where I was lucky enough to, to visit um, a couple of times and then and then visiting um, a palliative care service out in Peru a couple of years ago as well. And I think what we know is that there is a wisdom to understanding what happens towards the end of a life and that some cultures use that wisdom to embrace the changes and to perhaps um, add ritual to the changes and so people know how to behave there is a way to be in the face of these things that cannot be changed and they understand how to do it and how to be and maybe one of those that's closest to home for me is that the traditions of the wake and the practices after a death are still very strong particularly down the west coast in Ireland and so Irish people have this great uh, reputation for being comfortable with death and what's interesting in visiting those people and in, in talking to the friends that I have there is that, yes, they do have rituals that take them through from the deathbed through to the funeral and into the period of mourning beyond that. So their ritual helps them to know how to be, but they feel that they've lost the wisdom of the end of living, the last part of living, where once upon a time your neighbours would call in to thank you and say goodbye. And that's become now a kind of socially awkward thing. But what I observed and heard about in New Zealand and in South America is 
where the wisdom traditions of the indigenous people have been strongly maintained, and that may be in groups who still are living an indigenous life, or in groups who actually have changed their way of living as the generations have passed, but they've still held those strong traditions. The traditions hold them in that last part of living and the respect for a person who's dying and the importance of visiting, the importance of acknowledgement, the importance of talking about how somebody's made their contribution during their lived life is often as important as the traditions and the rituals that follow their death. So I think it's interesting that the the, the most, um, what was your acronym? Weird. Weird. <laughs> the most weird of those cultures then probably is the Irish culture and they're seeing that awkwardness of discussing the imminence of death with a dying person is undermining those traditions. And I really hope that we can relearn those long-held traditional wisdoms faster than we will undermine them and lose them by that kind of weird culture stamping itself on top of them. Oh, we've touched on it a little bit already, but I'd love to just hear a little, little bit more about what you've learnt about denial, in particular in relation to the story about Enid and Mr Rook in Lesson. And I guess to sort of paraphrase for me, how, what I understood was that how delusion or, you know, not being aware that somebody is dying can turn into anger and blame and, and you know, the, the drive to, to, to find someone at fault after a death. Yeah. So it's, this, is a, this is an example story of one of many meetings that I used to attend as the uh, the person responsible for the way the hospital approached end-of-life care, even if the palliative care team wasn't involved in delivering that person's care, the palliative care team was responsible for staff education and setting the tone, if you like, of the way we deal with people at the very end of their lives. So if there was a complaint about end-of-life care, I would be involved and uh, and would meet the family if that's what they requested so that was the situation here so the the, the backstory is of uh, a very much loved husband and dad an older man who developed prostate problems and came into hospital to have what was thought to be quite a simple procedure to um, remove a little bit of his prostate so that it wasn't obstructing his bladder so that he could pass urine more easily but it turned out that actually it was a lot more complicated than that because this man saw himself as the guardian of his wife's happiness and therefore he didn't want to cause her to have any worry. And so he didn't tell her that his general practitioner had told him that this operation was urgent because the back pressure from his prostate obstructing his bladder um, the, the pressure of urine backwards towards his kidneys was causing his kidneys to begin to fail. And there was an interesting dimension that was never really explored by anybody in, in the early days, which was that this man absolutely staunchly and rigidly 
refused to countenance the idea of having a catheter, even for a few weeks, to relieve the pressure, let the kidneys recover a little bit, and that would all have made it a little bit safer for him to have his surgery. So he came into hospital apparently a healthy man as far as his family were concerned. And then he had his procedure, he woke up after his surgery, um, seemed to be okay. But the blood tests that the hospital were doing to check that his kidneys were now starting to recover actually showed that his kidneys were not recovering. In fact, things were getting worse. Um, and over the next few days, he deteriorated markedly. As his kidneys failed, he got very confused. And then when he was really confused but quite frightened, he used his mobile phone in the middle of the night to call his wife to say that the hospital staff were killing him. Oh, goodness. And she, of course, was absolutely terrified, hopped in a taxi, came straight to the hospital and there met a junior doctor who, for the first time, explained to her how very sick her husband was. And she discovered that actually he'd given instructions to the doctors and the nurses looking after him that they were not to give any medical information to his family because he didn't want his wife to be worried. So she discovered that he had failing kidneys and that he hadn't been honest with her about how very sick he was only hours before he actually then died because of his kidney failure. And her sense was actually that something's happened here. He was well, he came into hospital, he had a procedure, and then he lost his mind and then he died. What went wrong? What did you do to my husband that made that happen? And so there was an internal investigation. And, and, and a family meeting. So this story is really describing the family meeting and how when we look at the world, we kind of assume that it's fair. We never stop to think about the possibility that maybe nothing is fair, maybe everything is random. So this lady had lots of ideas about how the world should be and should when we hear people talking about should, it sits on top of anger all of the time. And it very often it either sits on top of outward facing anger, like you did something wrong or who did something wrong. Or it sits on inward facing anger of I did something wrong. And um, so either it's grief or shame or guilt about me and my action or lack of action, or it's anger about somebody in the world and their action or lack of action. So we were needing to have this conversation with this lady and her sons and not to make it sound as though we're saying, well, your husband made a series of disastrous decisions. He decided not to tell you how sick he was. He decided not to have a, a catheter. And so actually everything that went wrong for him is a consequence of his poor decision making because that would be a terrible message to give and yet at the same time she wants to be angry with somebody and she's really really angry with the doctor who told her bad news the surgeon who didn't tell her how sick her husband was and so we're having a conversation where gradually by asking questions 
finding out what she knew and then giving her little bits of extra information. We're almost helping her to build a jigsaw that helps her to see that actually nobody here has be behaved with bad intent. The doctors didn't deceive to hurt me. They deceived out of respect for my husband's wishes. And our contract, of course, is always with the patient and they can make unwise choices and we can try to explain that, you know, families sometimes get a fright if they don't know everything they need to know. But in the end, it's the patient's decision. And his decision to not tell her things wasn't because he didn't trust her or he didn't want her to be his companion in life. It was, it was the opposite of that. It was that he loved her so much that he didn't want her worrying about him because she'd recently been diagnosed with quite a serious illness herself and he felt his job was to protect and guard and care for her. So gradually over the course of this meeting we're able to form a picture of this kind man who loved this woman, who was protecting her from concern about him and so when things went uh, went wrong for him medically she was completely unprepared for what then was about to to happen but that that wasn't that it was somebody's fault she was able to understand it she was able to see it in the context of him being the man she'd always known him to be her great protector but it takes a long time a lot of hospital complaints take a long time to resolve because it's so important that people are able to feel heard. It is really important when, you know, sometimes we do make mistakes in, in medical care and when mistakes are made, we've got to be able to say, yes, that, that was a mistake and we are terribly sorry that the mistake was made and that it had these particular consequences. So the meetings need to be tender because we're asking people to be honest and be vulnerable and to accept each other's confession. Thank you so much, Catherine Mannings, for joining me on Death Walker's Guide to Life. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life, and I've just been talking to Dr. Catherine Mannix about her new book, Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. In each episode of Death Walker's Guide to Life, I'm asking my guests to nominate one song they'd like played at their funeral or wake, and I'm gradually compiling a Death Walker's Guide to Life playlist on Spotify featuring farewell songs. You can also find this list on my website at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Like my previous guests, Catherine Mannix found it very tricky to single out one song, but gracefully agreed to the challenge and nominated Dido's Lament by Henry Purcell. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I've just been chatting with retired palliative care doctor, therapist and author, Dr. Catherine. Now it's time for the second and final bookend in today's show, Death on Screen, when I briefly review a film, TV series or online resource that explores something to do with death and dying. Today we're travelling through cyberspace to a small village called Utsuchi on the northeastern coast of Japan. Imagine a white phone booth perched on a hill. 
In the booth on a small bench, you'll find a black rotary dial phone, one of those old-fashioned phones you dial with one finger. Beside it, there is a notebook and a pen and some fresh flowers. Oh, and some hand sanitizer. In this phone booth, you're invited to call your deceased loved, one, loved ones. You don't need to be plugged into the telecoms network to have a one-way conversation with the dead. Connected, despite disconnection. The phone booth is called Kaze no Denwa in Japanese, which loosely means wind phone in English, although, so, although it has also been bestowed the slightly more poetic name, phone of the wind. It's called the phone of the wind because the phone is not plugged in to anything. The wind phone or phone of the wind is the brainchild of a landscape gardener called Itaru Sasaki, who set it up after his beloved cousin died of cancer. Sasaki created it so that he could feel connected with his cousin after his death, but it soon began to provide solace to those in the surrounding region, whose loved ones died in the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami, which killed 10% of the local population. Then people who had been impacted in the resulting Fukushima disaster started coming too, and then international tourists and travellers. I first heard about the wind phone when I was participating in Tessa Fontaine's Art of Death, one of Atlas Obscura's online experiences. If you haven't already heard about Atlas Obscura before, it publishes stories about hidden places, incredible history, scientific marvels and gastronomical wonders. Its mission is to inspire wonder and curiosity about the incredible world we all share. It's a global community of explorers who have together created a comprehensive database of the world's most extraordinary places and foods. In the five-part Art of Death course, we explored notions of death and dying around the world, drawing from biology, history and beyond. When I participated back in February and March this year, I was the only one based in the Southern Hemisphere. As, as well as running online courses for death nerds like me, Fontaine is the author of The Electric Woman, a memoir in death-defying acts. In 2018, she wrote an essay called The Phone of the Wind, a pilgrimage to a disconnected phone in Utsuchi, Japan, which was published in The Believer, a Nevada-based online magazine. When Fontaine asked Mr. Sasaki why he chose a rotary phone for his phone booth, he said that the extra time it takes to dial is good, gives you a chance to figure out what to say to the dead. In her essay, Fontaine reports that most locals come after dark or very early in the morning. They keep their grief private. If Mr. Sasaki sees someone out in his yard on the phone, he pretends not to notice. Death doesn't end life, Mr. Satsaki told Tessa. One person dies, and all the others around them go on living. As well as attracting visitors from around the world, the Phone of the Wind has spawned several replicas near Dublin, Ireland, and in Oakland, California, as well as another Japanese prefecture. And according to Wikipedia, a wind phone was built on Aspen Mountain in Colorado earlier this year. According to the artist who remains anonymous because shrines are forbidden in United States national forests, the wind phone was constructed as an outlet for people mourning deaths caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. The wind phone has also resulted in several works of literature and film.
In 2017, Sasaki, the creator of the Usuchi wind phone, wrote a book of reflections titled Kaze non Denwa. Oh, no, actually, I'm not going to attempt the rest of the name, but the English translation is The Phone of the Wind, What I Have Seen Via the Phone in the Six Years Since the Earthquake. After Italian writer Laura Emai Messina visited the Otsuchi wind phone in 2011, she wrote a novel called The Phone Box at the Edge of the World, which was published in 2020 and tells the story of a woman who loses her family in the Tohoku tsunami and travels to the wind phone where she meets a widower and his daughter who have experienced similar losses. Canadian writer Heather Smith wrote a novel titled The Phone Booth in Mr. Horoto's Garden which was also published in 2020. Smith fictionalizes the origins of the wind phone but fully acknowledges that Sasaki's wind phone inspired her. She first heard about it on a national public radio podcast and then exchanged emails with Sasaki during the writing process. There have been at least two films made about the wind phone, including an Austrian short film and a Japanese feature. There are also several news stories about the wind phone on YouTube. You can find a link to these books, articles and videos on my website, Deathwalker's Guide to Life. You've been listening to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Find out more about the show and how you can follow me, Kerry Sunderland, at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, ka mihi, a big thank you to CNF Legal for sponsoring the show. CNF Legal's specialist team of solicitors and legal executives can help you with every aspect of planning for the inevitable end of your life, so give Maria Robin a call on 03 808 or visit their website cflegal.co.nz Fly away Fly away Thanks to New Zealand On Air for making this podcast available by funding the Access Media Project. Other great podcasts from Fresh FM are available through the accessmedia.nz app or our website freshfm.net.